The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. All right, um, how do you like my title? You agree with that? Don't say no because it's verse 8, okay? <laughs> so don't go saying, I don't know about that. That's what the verse says, okay? So, alright, we're continuing our study in First John this morning. And we're looking at the fourth chapter. And we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 10. Now, since First John 4, 7 and First John 4, 11 both begin with John addressing the readers as beloved, it appears that 4, 7 through 10 is a unit, and we're going to take it that way. And verse 11 will mark the beginning of a new unit. Alright, in 4, 1 through 6, John gave us a criteria of testing the spirits. And now he returns to the theme of loving one another. John has already talked about this theme several times. Alright, he talked about it in chapter 2, 7 through 11. He said, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Now, we've been talking a lot about abiding in this epistle. That's what this epistle is about. And when you love, you're abiding in the light. And in, in Him, there is no cause for stumbling. So he hit it in chapter 2. Then he hits it again in chapter 3, 11 through 18. He says, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, in our text, John not only repeats the imperative to love one another in, verses, in chapter 4, verse 7, all the way through 5, 4, but he hits it harder than at any other point in the book. He's been cycling through these themes in the book. You know, he hits something, then he goes back and he hits it again, and he goes back and hits it again. Well, he's hitting it again this time with greater detail, a little more emphasis, alright? Now, the connection between what John says in 4, 1 through 6 about testing the spirits and his change to the subject of love in 4, 7 stems from 3, 23 that says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Yeshua the Christ, and love one another, just as He has given us commandment. Now, in 4, 1-6, through 6, John explains the first part of that commandment, namely, believing in the name of His Son, Yeshua the Christ. The first commandment, the greatest work that we can do, is to believe in Christ. Now, some of the false teachers tried to separate Yeshua from the Christ. They didn't agree that Yeshua, the man, was the Son of God, and so John tells his readers, to test the spirits. And then in the second part of the verse, he says, and love one another, just as he's given us commandment. So now this is the second part, and that's where he's going now in verse 7 on. And I think that we see here that love doesn't mean that we set aside truth for the sake of unity. You know, there's so many people who believe, well, we just have to be loving. Well, there's a point in which we have to say, wait, we have to stand with the truth, all right? Some doctrinal differences are not essential to the gospel, and we need to love brothers who differ on some of these matters. They're not a big deal. Let's don't fight over them, okay? But there are other doctrines where believing or rejecting them makes the difference between life and death. And we have to draw the line. We have to stand up for that. On these issues, we must never compromise the truth for the sake of love. Now, to deny the necessity of the substitutionary atonement of Christ John's going to hit on in verse 10 here we'll talk about. Or that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, apart from works, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, would be to deny the gospel. 
to deny the Trinitarian nature of Yahweh or to deny the deity of Christ and His perfect humanity would also be to deny the Gospel. We have to take a stand on the truth. And we have to speak out against those who are not teaching the truth, but are teaching lies. Alright, let's look at our text. He starts out, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. The Greek sentence here begins with, Agapetos agapao. Sounds similar? <laughs> Basically, it could be translated this way. Those who are loved, let us love. The loved are to love. That's what he's saying. Beloved, let us love. Agapetos agapao. Agapetos is expressing something of affection for his readers. It's an affectionate term, but it's also a term he uses to introduce subject matter that that they need to pay special attention to. All right? So he says, "Beloved, let us love one another." This is a present active subjunctive. Now, the active voice is used when the subject of the sentence is the agent of the action described in the verb. Now, the Greek present tense indicates continued action, something that happens continually or repeatedly or something that is in the process of happening. And the subjunctive mood states a contingency. Now, Greek grammarians called the subjective mood the mood that expresses doubt. The subjective naturally looks to the future for the resolution of the contingency. So there's a contingency. Are we going to love or are we not going to love? When John exhorts his readers, let us love one another, he's encouraging them to allow God's love to flow through them. So what does that look like? Well, Depends on who you'd ask, right? You get all kinds of ideas on what love people think love is. Biblical love is self-sacrificing, a self-sacrificing commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one love. It's not about sentimentalism, not about emotions. Here's what Paul says about love. This helps us kind of define things that makes us leave more uncomfortable. Love is patient. And kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. Hmm. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, let me just hit a few of these, alright? Love is patient. This is the Greek word makrothumio. In almost every New Testament occurrence, it conveys the idea of having an infinite capacity for someone to be injured without seeking to pay back. It's used with regard to people, not circumstances. Patient means having a long fuse. The loving person is able to be inconvenienced or taken advantage of by a person and yet not be upset or angry. Hmm. Let's do one more. Love is kind. This is the Greek word krastuomai. It means to show oneself useful, to act benevolently, to be kind or good. Kindness and goodness are so closely related that they're often used interchangeably. The verb itself speaks of activity. It involves active goodwill, being useful for somebody else's good. And it always trying to do what is helpful to the other person, even if it involves sacrifice. Kind people are easy to take. They're not harsh. So when John says, let us love one another, 
He is saying that we should have an infinite capacity to be injured without trying to pay back. That we should react to injury by doing kind deeds to the person who has caused the injury. Believers, this kind of love will only happen when we allow God's love to flow through us. This is not human. This is supernatural. This is God's love. Now notice what he says next. We need to love. Why? For love is from God. The word for here is hadi. And it's giving the reason why readers, as believers, ought to love one another. They're to love one another because love comes from God. John wants us to know that whenever we see genuine biblical love, it didn't originate with the person. I mean, when you see someone who's actually genuinely loving like the Bible talks about, it's coming from God because He's the only source of love in the world. It's supernatural. Well, Christianity, people, is supernatural. We have a supernatural birth. We have a supernatural life. So let me ask us. When people look at us, when they look at our life, do they see a love that could only be explained by the supernatural work of God? The early church father, Clement of Alexandria, said this. The Christian practices being God. (laughs) That's exactly what John says. In chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's practicing being God. The Christian practices being God by abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ is the key here, people, to loving one another. He says, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, what John is saying here is that when we see someone who truly loves, we can know two things about them. Okay? The loving person, first of all, he says, has been born of God. Secondly, he says, they know God. Now, please notice that John treats these concepts as two different things. This is critical, people. Let's break this down. He says he's been born of God. The verb born here, ganao, in this context means to be fathered by God and thus be a child of God. The imagery the author uses is that of a male parent who fathers children. Now the expression born of God is best explained by references in the fourth gospel. John 1, 12-13 emphasizes that people become children of God by nat- not by natural birth, but by being born of God. And then in chapter 3, Yeshua tells Nicodemus that he must be born from above. And this is equivalent to being born of the Spirit. So being born of God then is quite distinct from natural human procreation. It's brought about by God through His Spirit in conjunction with faith in Christ on the part of the person who trusts Him. So, let me ask you this. Can a non-Christian love Can a non-Christian love? Can a non-Christian love biblically? No. We just talked about this. This comes from God. It's supernatural. You know, a non-Christian can certainly have great affection. They can do things that are sacrificial. But divine love belongs to those who are born again. To those who have been regenerated by the Lord God that the Spirit dwells within. 
If a person doesn't have the Spirit within them, they cannot love the way God is calling us to love. So John is telling us that everyone who loves is giving evidence that they have been born of God. Now, would you agree with that so far? That's what it says, right? But let me ask you this. Could we say that someone who is not loving is not born of God? No? Why not? Well, because John is saying here that when we see someone who truly loves, we can know two things about them, right? They've been born of God, and they know God. See, now most people would say, well, if they don't love, it's because they're not a Christian. That's not what this text is saying. All right, we got two things here. Let's look at the second concept, knowing God. There's several different words in the ancient Greek language translated know into English. The specific word for know here is gnosko. It's a word for a knowledge by experience. You understand? You can just know some things because you read a book, but you on you can experience something. This is the idea of experiencing God. John is saying that when we really experience God or abide in Him, same thing, that's what he's talking about here, it will show by our love for one another. The term no reflects the Hebrew sense of ongoing intimate fellowship. So when we see someone who truly loves, we can know two things about them. We can know they've been born of God, because they couldn't do that if they haven't been born of God. And we also know that they know God. Now, notice what John says next. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Now, in their historical context, the statements about those who do not love are probably directed toward the secessionists. Although these people undoubtedly claim to know God, John sees such a claim as impossible. For how can one who lacks love for God's children be said to know the God who is love? Now, what is this not saying? Anyone who does not love does not know God. What's that not saying? Right, this is not saying that anyone who does not love is not born of God. It doesn't say that. Could he have said that? You think John had the capability of words? You think the Holy Spirit, you know, kind of stumbled here and said, well, I meant, I meant you need to be born again. I didn't mean no God. No. We saw in the previous verse that when we see someone who truly loves, we know two things about them. They've been born of God and they know God. But if someone does not love, John doesn't say they're not born of God. He never says that. What he says is they don't know God. And most people would say, well, they don't know God means they're not a Christian. They're not born of God. No, that's not what the text says. That's not what it means. Commenting on this verse, Stephen Cole writes this. Some find significance in the fact that John does not repeat the phrase is born of God in the negative statement. I do not. In other words, doesn't he didn't say that, but doesn't matter. Now watch what he says. All that are born of God know God. So he's just saying, knowing God, being born of God, they're the same thing. But they're not the same thing. And if it's true, then why does John add, and know God, to verse 8? Why didn't he just say, whoever loves has been born of God, and just leave it there? Is knowing God something different? Yes, it is. Commenting on verse 8, Paul Harris writes this. In contrast, the person who does not love does not know God. And thus is not really a genuine believer. 
no matter what he or she might claim. See, that's how most people take it. They take it when John says they don't know God. They say, well, they're not a Christian. Well, that's funny because the verse previously, he said, they're born of God and they know God. See, you can be a Christian and not demonstrate love. But you can't know God and not demonstrate love. All right? John is making the absence of love a proof of not abiding. But these commentators are making it a proof of not being saved. Huge difference, people. And if he's making this a matter, if you don't love, you don't, you're not a Christian, then guess what? A lot of us are in trouble. Okay? Well, if we're talking about biblical love. Now, according to this epistle, absence of love shows that a person does not have an intimate relationship with they don't know experientially God. It doesn't show they're never born of God. Let's back up a bit, and, because we covered this word know before. In 1 John 2, 4, whoever says, I know him, I have fellowship with him, I'm abiding in him, watch, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. You ever have people tell you? Oh yeah, I have a great relationship with God, I know God. Well, he says, if you don't obey, then you're a liar. But can a Christian not keep his commandments? I guess so, because all through the New Testament, he keeps telling us to keep them. Now, I don't know why you would do that if, you know, we automatically, because some people just think, you, once you get saved, you just automatically do what's right. If that's true, I didn't get it. <laughs> because I don't, it doesn't, what's automatic to me is sin, it seems like. I had to fight to do right, okay? Now, since all the commandments are summed up in love, John says, he who does not love does not know God. Not loving is a sign that you're not abiding in Christ. John uses no in its Hebrew sense of personal relationship. Knowing God involves fellowship with Him, 1 John 1.4, walking in His light, 1.7, being in Him, abiding in Him, 2.5 and 6. These are all parallel versions of a single claim to be an intimate relationship with God. That's what this epistle is about, fellowship. To abide in Him means exactly the same thing as knowing Him, which is the same thing as having fellowship with Him. They're all one and the same experience. Having fellowship, knowing, abiding, it's all the same. They're all synonyms for a close, intimate relationship with Him. He uses know here as a synonym for abiding. For John, loving obedience is a natural result of fellowship with God. See, what he's talking about here, people, is our communion, not our union. Our union is permanent and unchangeable. Once you trust Christ, you are joined to Christ, you are in union with Him. That never changes, and never alters, never fluctuates. But your communion does. Your relationship with God fluctuates, changes, based on how you're living. I see abiding as being an intimate relationship with Christ. And I see that, listen, as a conditional relationship that can be interrupted or terminated after it's begun. Living the Christian life is like marriage. If you just get married and say, okay, we're married now, let's go on, and you don't work at it, you're not going to have a great marriage. It takes work. And same with the Christian life. If you're not going to work at your Christian life, you're not going to get much out of it. Okay? 
All Christians are called to abide in Christ, to walk as He walked. We saw this in John 15. He says in verse 3, now you are clean. In verse 2, then in verse 3 he says, abide in me. So he's talking to Christians and he tells Christians to abide in him. At times we do abide. And we love others and we don't sin and we keep his commands. At other times we don't abide. And we don't keep his commands and we don't really love. Because God is light, those who abide in him walk in the light. Because God is righteousness, those who abide in Him practice righteousness. Just so, God is love and those who abide in Him manifest His loving character. We all saw earlier in this epistle that as believers we are commanded to abide in Christ. People, this is why there's so much different opinion over this book of 1 John. Okay, Because some people think it's a test to tell who's saved and who's not saved. I see it as He's encouraging these believers to abide in Christ, to have an intimate, close relationship with Him. Over and over he says this. Let's look at 1 John 2.28. He says, now little children. Who are the little children? They're believers, right? He's talking to believers, and what does he say? Abide in Him. Now, if they're the same thing, if all believers abide in Christ, then what is he, why does he say this? He's not, you know, he's telling you, listen, your children, do this, abide in Him. They're told to abide. I see abide as something that every believer is supposed to do, but many do not. They don't. Abiding is a call to discipleship. It's to be a follower of Jesus, to live in fellowship with Him. We abide in Him, listen, by spending time in the Word of God. You cannot Abide in Christ without spending time in the Word. You can't do it. So just don't even think there's another shortcut, there's another way around it. You've got to get in the Word. You've got to be familiar with the Word. You've got to obey the Word, which you can't do if you don't know the Word. We need to live as Christ lived. 2.6 You abide in Him, walk as He walked. How do we know that? Because you're in the Word and you see how He walked and you react the same way. By loving our brothers and sisters. Abiding in Him is the same thing as what's called in other places. Paul in Ephesians says, walk in the Spirit. It's called other places, fellowship with Christ. Jude calls it, keep yourself in the love of God. It's abiding. It's an intimate relationship. And again, people, listen, this can only happen if the Word of Christ dwells in you. We have to have the Word of God. We have to live the commandments. We have to live loving one another. And as you know the Word, and as you obey the Word, you will be abiding in Christ and you will bear much fruit, he says. And because you're bearing fruit, he says in John 15, you will experience joy. Because there's joy in fellowship. And that's why maybe so many Christians are not too joyful. Because they're out of fellowship. And when you're out of fellowship, that's a miserable, you know... When I'm out of fellowship with my wife, my life is a mess. And yet I'm too stubborn to fix it right away. i got to dwell on that for a little while, and then I go back and fix it. It's always my fault. Okay, I've learned that a long time ago. <laughs> if you just, no matter what happened or who did it, husband, just say you're sorry and get back to life, okay? <laughs> that is the truth, I swear. <laughs> Anyone who does not love does not know God. 
Now, people, you can't stick being born again in there, okay? Because that's not what he's talking about. If you do, then you have very few Christians. The point John is making here is that the absence of love for other believers is evidence that a person is not abiding in Christ. They're not fellowshipping with God. Because God is love. And if you're in an intimate fellowship with Him, your relationship with Him, you're going to be expressing that love to those around you. If the one who is born of God will necessarily be a loving person, why does John command him to love in verse 7? He says, Beloved, let us love one another. Okay, if just the fact that you're beloved, if that guarantees you're going to abide, then you don't need to be told this. Why command a believer to love when he can't help but love if he's born of God? See, their argument is not right, okay? Listen, believers, it's not the new birth that guarantees that a person will be loving. It's abiding in Christ that guarantees a person will be loving. And that's why John says anyone who does not love doesn't know God. Now, if someone does love, you know they're abiding, but you also know they're born again because you can't abide unless you're born again. That's the place you start. Okay, You start with a new birth, and then as a Christian, you can abide in Christ. And from this, we must interfere infer that knowing God necessarily results in being a loving person. If a believer is not loving, it's because they are not abiding in Christ. They are not in fellowship. And so the way to fix that is not try to strain and love someone you can't stand. It's to get in fellowship so that love can come through you. He says, and the reason they don't love is because God is love. When we say God is love, we're not saying everything about God. We talked about this last week. The Bible also tells us that God is a spirit. John 4, 24. God is light. 1 John 1, 5. And my favorite, God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. Why do I like that? Because it does. It shows you that you can't limit God. God's love. And people are thinking, you know, God's throwing flowers and, you know, got kittens with them. And he's just such a gentle... No! He's a consuming fire. God's wrath is part of his attributes. John is telling us that love is an essential aspect of his character and it colors everything about his nature. But it does not eliminate his holiness or his righteousness or his perfect justice. Instead, we know the holiness of God is loving. The righteousness of God is loving. The wrath of God is loving. The justice of God is loving. Everything God does in one way or another expresses his love. Look at Yeshua's prayer in John 17. This is the high priestly prayer. This is what the Lord is praying. This is the disciples' prayer. Not the disciples' prayer, okay? This is the Lord's prayer. All right, He's the one praying here. He says, Father, I desire that also whom you have given me, His disciples, the elect, He's given to Him, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Yahweh the Father has loved Yahweh the Son from eternity past. God is love because the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is a relationship of love. Well, then look at what Yeshua says a couple of verses later in 26. He says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. This is a purpose clause. Yeshua made known the name of Yahweh so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. What Yeshua is saying is, When you come to know God personally, when you abide in Him, you are drawn into the fellowship of the Trinity. 
This is staggering. Yeshua prays that the love which the Father has loved the Son would be in us. In other words, to know God is to love the Son with the very love that the Father loves Him. Incredible. Incredible thought. God is love. Now, let me just make a distinction here. The word God is preceded here by an article. All right, Which means that from a grammatical standpoint, it's not a proposition in which the subject and predicate nominative are interchangeable. Okay, God is love doesn't equal love is God. Okay, Big difference. God is love. Love isn't God because people have mean all kinds of things by love. Alright, let's go on. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. All right, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Manifest is the Greek word phanerao, and it means to render apparent, to appear. God's love is seen in that He sent His Son into the world. This is a perfect, active, indicative. The incarnation and its results remain. This shows us what love is and what it means. Love is not only defined by the sacrifice of Yeshua. It is, but not only... It is also defined by the giving of the Father. See, it was a sacrifice for the Father to send the second person to the Trinity and a sacrifice to pour out judgment that we deserve on His own Son. Isaiah 53 puts it like this in verse 10. Yet, it was the will of Yahweh to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. When His soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. It was the Father's intention from the beginning that the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12.3 that all the nations would be blessed through him would be fulfilled through the death of his son. Once our iniquity had fallen on Yeshua, the justice of God demanded that he bear the full weight of the divine wrath against sinners. Now, the language of the whole Bible in regards to sacrifice and particularly in regard to Christ's death is that of substitutionary. It's a substitutionary sacrifice. The animals that were offered sacrificially on the altar in ancient Israel's temple, they didn't have any sin of their own. They were substitutes that pointed to the only sufficient substitute, Yeshua. It was necessary for a sacrifice to bear the judgment of God so God's justice would be fulfilled. He would be just. And giving life to the sinner. It says, God sent His only Son into the world. This is the same thing John said in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Now, notice that in both places that John says it was His only Son. Some translations have only begotten Son. The word only and only begotten in some translations, are from one Greek word, monogonese. And the use of the word only is important because it's only used five times in the New Testament of Christ as the Son of God, and it's used this way only in the writings of Lazarus, John Eleazar. It's used in John 1.14, 1.18, 3.16, 3.18, and in 1 John 4.9. Only five times this is used of Christ. Now let me ask you something. How can Yeshua be the only son when throughout the Tanakh we got many people called sons of God? You remember back in Genesis 6? 
the divine council, the watchers are called sons of God. Genesis 6, 1 through 2. When men began to multiply in the face of the land, daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive. And they took them as their wives, any they choose. Now, this is the first use of sons of God in the Bible. It's also used in verse 4 of this chapter. It's used in Deuteronomy 32. And it's used in Job chapter 1, chapter 2, and in Job 38, 4-7. Look what it says here. God's talking to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Well, Job really wasn't around then, okay? He said, tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Sarcasm? Job didn't have a clue, okay? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? The sons of God here are names of divine beings who are members of the divine council. Daniel calls them watchers. They were there before the world was created and they rejoiced as God created it. So before the creation of the earth, Yahweh and the sons of God made up the divine council. But it's not only watchers who are called sons of God. Adam is called the son of God. The saints, us, are called sons of God. It's particularly in the New Testament. Uh, in this very book, in chapter 3 and verse 1, speaking of the love which the Father has bestowed upon us, it says that we should be called sons of God. We're all sons and daughters of God. So how can Lazarus say five times that Yeshua is the only son? How could Yeshua be the only divine son when there are other sons of God? Well, the answer to this is that only begotten, used in many translations, is kind of an unfortunate and confusing translation, especially to modern ears. Not only does the translation only begotten seem to confer the obvious statements in the Tanakh about other sons of God, but it implies that there was a time when the son didn't exist. He had a beginning. And we, we hear the word begotten and we think, oh, a birthing process. The word monogonase doesn't mean only begotten in some sort of birthing sense. The confusion extends from an old misunderstanding of the root of the Greek word. For years, monogonase was thought to have derived from two Greek terms, monos, only, and ganao, to beget or to bear. Well, Greek scholars later discovered that the second part of the word, monogonase, does not come from the Greek verb ganao, but rather from the noun genes, class or kind. The term literally means one of a kind. Unique, without connotation of created origin. The word in the Greek was used of an only child. See, you say, well, why didn't these Greek scholars figure this out? You know, the more information we get, the more scrolls they find when they dug up Ugarit and found all the tablets and stuff there. They found the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're learning more. And they're learning about things. And so, I mean, we have more knowledge now about Scriptures than ever. You know, and that's why you want to use a Bible that relies somewhat on the Dead Sea Scrolls and on the Septuagint. They give you a much more accurate translation. All right, so this Greek word is use of an only child in Luke 7, 12. And he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Only son. You know, I really love this text. You know what's going on here? You know the background? It's a funeral. Yeshua's coming along, comes on to funeral. And this guy is the only son. So this makes the mother, 
So you've got no one now. Okay, if, if you're familiar with this knock, you know that God looks out for orphans and widows because they were class, they can't care for themselves. There wasn't Social Security, it wasn't any of that. So here's this mother now, she's got no one to take care of her. So Yeshua doesn't say, you know, you ought to go down to the Social Security office and apply so you can get some help now that you have nobody. No, he says, hold on, stop this a minute. He puts his hand on the sun, get up, get out of the coffin, take care of your mom. I mean, that is so incredible to me. Because to me, it's not just a resurrection, it's the love of God for this widow. Here's a woman in need. God says, I can take care of that. Get up, boy. Awesome, it's an awesome story, okay? Okay, only here is monogenes. Luke also used monogenes of an only son in 938. He used it of an only daughter in Luke 8.42. The Hebrew writer uses this word of Isaac. He says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son. And so Isaac here is called Abraham's monogenes. Now, if you know the story, you know Isaac wasn't the only son, right? Abraham already had a son, Ishmael, by Hagar. Later on after this event, he had other sons. But Isaac is called by the writer of Hebrews, Abraham's only son. And what he is saying is that Isaac is unique. He was unique in his birth. It was miraculous. He was unique in his relationship to Abraham as his father. None of the other sons had the promises that Isaac had. Isaac's genealogical line would be the one through which the Messiah would come. So he was the only son in the sense of he was the unique son. Now when we look at the watchers and we look at Adam, we see that they are sons of God by creation. God created the watchers, created Adam. When we look at ourselves as saints in the New Testament era, we are sons and daughters of God through redemption and adoption. But Yeshua is the only begotten Son of God, begotten, not created, and there's a difference. You see, Yeshua is not just a man like the false teachers who were saying was born naturally into the world in Bethlehem, and then all of a sudden, because He honored God during His baptism in the Jordan, the Holy Spirit came upon Him, the Christ Spirit, and all of a sudden He became akin to the Son of God. No, Yeshua is God's Son in a unique ontological way. Believers are God's children only in a derived sense. And just as Yahweh is Elohim, no other Elohims are Yahweh, so Yeshua is a unique son. No other sons of God are like him. So monogonase means one of a kind, unique or only. The only one of his kind. There is no other son of God who is the son of God in the same way that Yeshua is the son of God. Only this one. All other sons of God Referred to in the scripture, they're either created or adopted. So that's what he means by that when he says the only Son of God. And then he says this, so that we might live through Him. This is a purpose clause. God sent an only Son in the world so that we may live through Him. Believers, we can only live through Him. Okay? In other words, we're all dead until we meet Christ. Everybody born is born dead. Anyone who has not been born again is spiritually dead. Now, they're alive physically. You know, they can read the paper. They have friends. They go to work. But they're spiritually dead, which means they're separated from God. They have no relationship with God. Well, how do we live through Him? This is an aorist active subjunctive which implies a contingency. A faith response is necessary. We have to believe in, trust in, the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Life is always identified with or said to be found in Yeshua. 
In the fourth gospel, Yeshua gives the following definition. He says, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Yeshua the Christ, who you have sent. John 10.10, I think most of you are familiar with that. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. People, I believe that the abundant life here is available to all believers. Available. I don't think all believers enjoy it. Within Christianity, everybody has life, but there are few that have abundant life. There may be two people who are alive, right? One may be very sick. So they both have life, but one does not enjoy life, one does not have abundant life because they're so sick. Or there may be two individuals that are very healthy, but one of them is in prison. So he doesn't have too much liberty, can't do what he wants, go where he wants, so he doesn't have abundant life either. They both have life, they both have health, but one doesn't have the freedom that the other has. People, there's a great deal of difference in experiencing of life and abundant life. Now, that which is true in the physical life, I think is true in the spiritual life. Every individual who has believed in the Lord Yeshua has spiritual life. But not many have abundant life. Why is that? Because abundant life is available to all. Why don't they have it? Because they're not abiding in Christ. Because as Christians, they're trying to do the things on their own. They're not trying to trust in the Lord for their circumstances. They're not trying to live for His glory. They're there for themselves. And you just end up in misery. And people, let me say, the abundant life has nothing to do with material things. Okay? It's not talking about that at all. It's about joy. It's about peace. It's about contentment. It comes from walking in fellowship with Christ. I shared this with you before, but I remember the first time I ever experienced this abundant life in another Christian. I was out when I was part of the Baptist church, you know, door knocking, going from door to door, and came upon a door of a man who, um, an elderly man, he was taking care of his wife who was totally in bedridden, you know, hadn't been out of bed. He, his whole life was just taking care of her. And, you know, I looked at that. I was young at the time, and I thought, oh, that's not our best life. This guy had such a relationship with Christ. I just wanted it. I didn't want to leave his house. Because, you know, I just felt like I was in the presence of God when I was with him. You know, I mean, he just he had such joy, such contentment. And I'm like, That's what it's about, people. It's not about circumstances, okay? You can have joy in the worst circumstances. You can have peace when what people think are the worst circumstances. It's about fellowship with Christ. Fellowship with Christ that brings this kind of a life. We might live through Him. That is a great way to define the Christian life. We live through Christ. We seek to honor Him in all we do and all we say. We live through Him. And we have an abundant life. And in verse 10, completing this section, he says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I want you to notice something here. In verse 9, he began, In this the love of God was made manifest. That stresses the way in which God's love was revealed. God's love is revealed to the cross, to Him giving His Son. All right? Now, in verse 10, we have that in which love consisted. Here, love's basic character is discussed. He's saying, here is what love is really about. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. So he's saying, basically, this is love. It's not us 
responding to people who love us. It's us loving people who hate us. That's what God did. In this is love. You see, we don't have a problem loving people who love us, do we? For the most part. Hey, you love me, I'll be glad to love you back. But if you don't, no. In this is love. It's not that we sought out God and started to love God. No. That's not what it was about. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. See, God's love is not a response to ours. Are you glad? You better say amen there, because if it was, guess what? We'd all be damned, okay? Christianity is unique among world religions. Typically, religion is mankind seeking God. That's religion's all about. But Christianity is God seeking fallen man. The wonderful truth is God loves us. He has sought us through our sin, through our rebellion, through our pride. The glorious truth of Christianity is that God loves fallen man and He has initiated and maintained a life-giving relationship. It's all about what He's done. And God's motivation for sending His Son to die was not in response to our love. He didn't know, oh, look at how nice those people are. They're so good to me. Let me let me do this for them. No. In fact, it was a response to, in spite of our hatred and rebellion in the face of a holy God. Romans 5.8 says, God shows His love for us, us there, the believers at Rome, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In this is love, that He made the initiative. That's what love's about. Love takes the initiative. John goes on to say, and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know, Yahweh didn't send a watcher. He didn't send an angel. He didn't send a man. He sent His Son. His love didn't just brush aside our sin because His holiness and justice would have been compromised. Rather, His love moved God to send His own Son who bore the penalty for what we rightly deserve. Let's talk about propitiation for a minute. John used this word twice in this epistle. Can anyone give me a definition of propitiation? Okay, peasing wrath, turning away wrath. Anybody else? Okay, the removal of wrath. By the offering of a sacrifice. That's what propitiation is all about. It's one of those theological words you probably don't use it a lot in everyday conversation. You know? You don't talk to your friends about, hey, have you heard about the propitiation of Christ? Maybe we should. You know? That would be a a much better conversation. It's a word that's worth the work to understand it. Because all of us are walking around with some sort of propitiation plan in our head. All people have a plan, I think. They have a plan. Here's how I will get right with God. I'll do this. I will do That's your plan of propitiation. How am I going to alleviate the wrath? What sacrifice am I going to offer? So we all have some kind of plan. All right? The big question is whether our plan is God's plan. Okay? That's, what, that's the thing. Now, to understand propitiation, we need to understand the gospel. And without it, you don't have a gospel. The Greek word here is halasmos, which means removal of wrath by the offering of a sacrifice. It's the turning of God's wrath away from the sinner by a sacrifice that is made to satisfy God. Now, this is an ancient word, which we Christians share in common with other world religions. Okay, It's not unique to Christianity. To propitiate a God is to offer a sacrifice that turns aside God's wrath. Now, some critics say that propitiation is a pagan notion. Hilasmos and the cognate hilasterion 
in their classical form, were used of the act of appeasing the Greek gods by giving a sacrifice. Now, let me give you a little story from Greek history. Prince Paris had carried off Princess Helen to Troy. And the Greek expeditionary forces had taken ship to recover her, but they were held up halfway by persistent contrary winds. And so Agamemnon, the Greek general, sent home for his daughter, and he ceremonial slaughtered her as a sacrifice to mollify the eventual, the evidently hostile gods. Well, the move paid off, west winds blew again, and the fleet reached Troy without any further difficulty. Now, that's a bit of Trojan War legend, which dates from around 1000 B.C., but it mirrors the idea of propitiation on which all pagan religion over the world and in every age has been built. They would take a present to their God and they tried to bribe Him. They would try to turn the God's favor towards them by offering Him something. Now, in pagan propitiation, the gods need to be propitiated because they're grumpy and they're capricious. They don't care much for humans Except when something makes them angry, then they get mad and they smite the humans or whatever. And so, it's up to humans to get busy doing the propitiating to make up for whatever they've done that angered the gods. Now, the humans find something that the gods like. Maybe it's sweet. Maybe it's meat. Maybe it's pain. Maybe it's blood. And they offer it to bribe or to calm down the wrathful deities. And because of the negative connotations of turning away God's wrath by sacrifice, Some scholars argue that the word propitiation doesn't focus on God's wrath, but it focuses rather on man's sin. And thus they translate the word expiation, which means to blot out the guilt of our sins by making atonement. Well, I think they do this because they get lopsided on this whole idea of love. God's love, so he can't be wrath. No, that's not true at all. Wrath is his attribute also. They're offended that we would consider God to be a God of anger, And then we would think of God in any way like the gods of the pagans, capricious, angry, who have to be placated by sacrifice, sometimes even human sacrifices. See, what we have to understand is that every aspect of biblical propitiation contrasts with the pagan kind. See, God requires propitiation not only because, not because he's moody or because he's easily provoked. He requires propitiation because he's holy. He can't just forgive your sin. He can't do that's not just. That's our system today of just injustice, so to speak. Okay? The guilty go free, you know. It's just it's it's a mess. But in God's justice, he is just. So I can't just say, You sinned. I can't just say, Okay, never mind, I don't care. No. It has to be paid for. And so Christ paid for it. Romans one eight says God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. God is wrathful. He has to display that on unrighteousness. Now, in biblical propitiation, it's not humans on their own initiative figuring out what God likes, but God Himself declaring what kind of sacrifice He accepts and then providing it. It's all God's terms. Christ and Christ alone is our propitiation. There is no other propitiation. That is, out of love for the glory of God, He absorbs the wrath of God that was rightfully ours. John Stott summarizes biblical propitiation this way. I love this. God Himself gave Himself to save us from Himself. That's a great description of propitiation. 
to, he satisfied his wrath, poured it out on sinners because he's holy. It's important that we understand what biblical propitiation is so that we can make sure that whatever plan we think is in our head is the biblical one rather than one of our own make devising. See, in daily life, there's a constant temptation, I think, to ignore Christ as our God-given propitiation and to seek other ways, you know, of making a deal with God. We're trying to earn His favor. We try to appease Him by doing things. Give Him something He'll like so He'll refrain from making our life miserable. Or maybe even reward us with various blessings. But apart from Christ, people, listen, there is no propitiation. None. only thing we have to look forward to is wrath. Now, either Christ bore the wrath of God for us, or we bear it ourselves. Only two choices. So the God who is love poured out His wrath on His only Son so that He could love us who were His enemies. He can love us not because His wrath is satisfied. He paid. We paid. My sin debt is paid in full. Not by me. Christ paid it. Now, that song, Yeshua paid it all. All to Him I owe. That's exactly right. He paid every bit of it. Past, present, future. My sin is covered. My debt is completely satisfied. In this is love. Love is like God's when it loves those who are not loving us. This is love, He says. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. You know, contrary to finding a contrast between love and wrath, John basically shows us here that you can't describe love without using the word propitiation. You can't describe God's love without using that, which the propitiation is God's wrath, okay? Poured out upon Christ. God so loved that He gave. God's love involved great sacrifice. This is what biblical love is. And this is what we're called to. And like I said, it's supernatural. You can't just go out and say, I'm just going to grip my teeth and love the unlovely. No, what you need to do is walk in fellowship with God so that love will come through you. That's the only way. Be controlled by the Spirit. As you're controlled by the Spirit, as you're walking in fellowship with God, then His love spills out and you kind of shake your head saying, wow, did I do that? (laughs) Let's pray. Believers, if we're not loving our brothers and sisters, it's simply because we're not abiding. We're not living in fellowship. And that's what we need to work on. Father, I thank You for Your love for us. Lord, as we look at the Scriptures, it's incredible that You poured out Your wrath on Your only Son. The Son You love from eternity past was the instrument that all Your wrath was poured out on that we might be forgiven. Lord, help us to understand what You've done for us. Help us to understand, Lord, what it means to walk, to live in fellowship with You. That our communion with You is so deep and so sweet that our actions are controlled of the Spirit. Thank You, Lord, for the power that is available to us. May we truly be Your image bearers in this world, Lord. When people look at us, may they see Christ. Amen. All right. Questions, comments. Anthony? So, so the love that he has for us, I mean, um, it's like a battery, some, somewhat a battery. You can have a battery that needs to be jumped, or you can have a brand new battery that 
if you have a brand new battery, if whatever is connected to through a battery through him, it won't work until you have that connection. And if it's a bad battery, same thing. It has to be, you know. Good illustration, Anthony. That's right. If you're not connected yeah. by the Spirit through an intimate relationship, it's just the power is not going to be there. Right. It's just not going to be there. And a lot of people try to do it in the flesh, and it just doesn't. It doesn't work, people. I mean, we're talking about genuine biblical love. You could smile, you could pretend you're nice to people you don't like, but to genuinely love them, you know. And I, I've heard and seen illustrations of it. You know, I've seen mothers go to a prison. To meet with the person who killed their child. And and genuinely care about that person. And I'm like, that is only an act of God. Okay? But that is the visualization for us that this is the love of God. I have another question. This is kind of a question to what you, uh, verse you said. Uh, uh, in John 10, uh, 10, 10. Um, the abundant life. Oh, hold on, give me a second. I had it. That's two pages where I written it down. Uh, okay, when you said uh, in John, First John uh, 2 and 6, when you say practicing being God, so what you said for us to not take it out of context, because people say, okay, I'm God, so I'm going to practice. <laughs> well, that's that's First John two six. He that says he abides in Him ought to walk as he walks. So that's practicing God, being God. That's doing what God does. That's what we're called to do. People, we have the divine nature. We are to live. We are to be gods to people around us in the sense of demonstrating His character. Now, we're not gods on the level of God, okay, but we have the divine nature. God dwells in us. That power is available when we're in communion. Okay. I hate to be bored, but I promise you just the last word. Okay, that's all right. First okay, John 4, 9. Uh-huh. Okay, so that we might live through Him. And I wanted to ask you, you know, our underlying might, and I heard you at Gorms a little bit later, Well, the word might there means you might not. Okay. We might live through him. In other words, that's an option. You can live through him. Okay? And you can have the abundant life, but it's not a guarantee. Okay, for Christians. Okay. And I'll tell you, a lot of lot of teachers teach that you become a Christian and just you just obey the commandments and you walk along and your life is perfect, and I'm like, no. That's not reality. And you're, you're just discouraging people when you teach that because that's not what the Bible teaches, first of all. The Bible is full, chock full of commandments to Christians. The Bible doesn't command unbelievers to do anything except believe on the Lord. That's the only command for an unbeliever. Believe on the Lord. All the rest are two believers. We're commanded to love. We're commanded to keep the commandments. We're commanded to do all these because it's not natural it's something that we have to apply ourselves to. And that's why, you know, I, in my theology, you're going to be a Christian and not be a disciple. A disciple is a follower. A disciple is someone who's abiding. But as Christians, you're called to be a follower. If you want the abundant life, it comes from following Christ, from living as a disciple of Christ. Okay. Anybody else? Stan?
Um, long time ago, back in the 80s, I don't know if you remember. I can't remember back in the last week. I, I, I can't. I can't remember last week. Some of it. But it was the communion singers, you know, they were like the, uh, I guess, uh, I can't think of the word, but just like Maranatha. Uh-huh. And they were the communion singers on a different label. But they had one, and they did a lot of choruses. One was called The Greatest Thing. And I don't know if it was loving, serving, no, loving, knowing, and serving. Loving, you know, the greatest thing in all my life is loving God, knowing Him, and serving Him. So. That's what it's all about. I think too many people just, they're all hung up on, I, I can't wait to get, I just want eternal life. Well, Christ is eternal life. It's knowing Him. And so, this, you know, you can live an abundant Christian life here where life is just incredible. Or you can, you know, I think some of the most miserable people on this planet are Christians who just refuse to honor God and live for God. And when I see them, I smile. Not because I'm rejoicing in their misery, but I'm like, you know, get with God. Get get your life together. He's calling you. He's got, you know, whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. I mean, the, the words used there is He scourges alive with a whip. In other words, it's, it's, it's painful. Discipline is painful. But God wants you to be who He's called you to be. Do you have a question? Uh, well, it just made me think what you just said. Um, did, did I understand you correctly when you said that that man, when you were going door to door, was the first person you had seen manifest the love of God? And yes, I mean, I in in in, in such. Oh, I've been in church all, a long time. Okay, so but I'm talking about this man was the first one that I looked at, and I was like, "This is not normal. Mm-hmm. This is not natural. Mm-hmm. This is a supernatural thing." I mean, I was. I was stunned to be in his presence. I mean, I really was. You know, and I'm out here handing out tracts, you know, trying to tell people about the Lord. And this guy, you know, he rocked my world because I just, I met a man who was so in fellowship with the Lord that it was like nothing, nothing bothered. It made me think of Paul, you know, you know, whip me, beat me and let's sing to the Lord. You know, hey Silas, what song? You know that song? Power in the blood. Let's sing. You know, it's just so, I don't know. American Christianity is so far from, I think, what the Bible calls us to be because we're just, you know, we got too much and we, you know, we give too little. It does seem like an indictment on, you know, churchianity because obviously you were doing that under the church's umbrella, so you've been around hundreds of Christians in your life and that's the... I was a I was a relatively new Christian at that time. Um, well, you know, four or five years, I guess, old in the Lord. But and I've been around. You know, and a lot of people will come into church. This church is so loving. What they mean is these people are nice. They're friendly. You know, it's not like they're they're sacrificing for you and you know giving of themselves. To, you know, it's not that sacrificial to say hi. How are you? It's nice to meet you. You know, it's not that sacrificial. Okay, so we have confused today love with just being nice sometimes. You know. <laughs> And it's much more than that, okay? I think from listening to Sharon this morning, opening up today, and what she was reading about that lady, and it hit me today, it hit me, like, you know, the way, uh, wherever you are, that's your sanctuary. You know, and you can, no matter where you are, if I not down you are, you can still praise God right there. Amen. You know? You know why that is? Because we, we, are the sanctuary. This is the sanctuary right here. You're the sanctuary. We are the dwelling place of God. My wife has a school that she teaches at, and they meet at a Methodist church, and they call it the sanctuary. And I always fuss at her when she says that. 
Right. That's what they call it. I don't care what they call it. It's not a sanctuary unless I'm there. <laughs> unless you're there. Because we are the sanctuary. God dwells. And when you get that mindset, God dwells in me. Amen. I am the dwelling place of God. Amen. That ought to affect your behavior. <laughs> it might affect your behavior. It should affect your behavior. <laughs>